Hello, welcome back to the Current State of Music podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cracknell. I'm a mix engineer, audio engineer here in Brighton in the UK. I also have a radio show under the name of Six Foot Stereo, which broadcasts on one BTN. And I also produce occasionally under my alter ego, Hollows. And the reason for the current State of Music podcast, well, it started off trying to find out kind of selfishly whether the music world and the music industry was an industry that was worth getting into, whether it was kind of in its death throes or whether there was lights of hope. When we started, it was very much doom and gloom and everyone's talking about how downloads were destroying the music industry. But kind of from scratching the surface and speaking to various people in season one, we found that actually the music industry seems to be in quite a healthy state in all its various guises. But what I found out was that the conversations I was having were fascinating and digging deeper into some of the sort of personal psychology of the journeys people have undertaken and how they've managed to create a career, overcome problems, the psychological barriers they've dealt with to achieve great art became more and more fascinating to me. And none more so than this episode with a guy who's a graffiti artist, he's a broadcaster, he's a DJ, he's a record collector. Kind of, I wouldn't say outspoken, but he's definitely got some strong opinions and I found this interview very inspiring. It actually changed the kind of format of how I put these podcasts together. And some of the things he talks about in this really stuck with me and stick with me even now. We recorded this back last summer and uh, I still get inspired by it almost every day. Kind of talking about the, the barriers that you place in front of yourself to stop yourself achieving what you want. And so I hope you get as much out of this episode as I do. He's a really interesting guy. He's a really funny guy. Um, He reminds me very much of a skater I used to live with called Mark Munson. Very kind of similar in the way they talk about life and how they go about sort of their approach to things. And so it reminds me of my man Mark as well. So, yeah, I found a real sort of common thread with this guy. His name's Arrow. You might know him as an artist and graffiti artist, seen his work. Certainly there's loads of work of his around Brighton in the UK. But he travels extensively, putting his artwork wherever he can. He hooks up with people, he inspires people, he brings people up. But what you might not know is that he dabbles in music production. He does a show here on 1BTN. He digs deep for music and uh, the mix that we're listening to behind us was put together by him. Normally I put together all the mixes under my name Six Foot Stereo 
But on this occasion, he came to my studio armed with a bag of records and a delightful hour. And his enthusiasm for the music as well is absolutely on point. Absolutely furiously enthusiastic about the tunes he was playing to me. And so I'll be putting this mix out at the end when I've run out of interviews. I think we've still got about another five to go in this season. Once we're done with that, I'll be putting some of the mixes online as well for you to download. Some of the ones from season one are already already on the SoundCloud page for you to download and enjoy. And I'll be back at the end with a bit of housekeeping to kind of tell you about all that sort of nonsense that everyone always tells you about at the end of their podcast. But for now, we've got about an hour in the company of my man, Arrow. I can indeed. I'm uh, Paul, otherwise known as Arrow, from the Heavy Artillery and VMD. And I'm also a part-time DJ and um, part-time music dabbler and collector, more importantly. Okay. Um, going back to early memories of music, when what was the, is there a particular point where you remember hearing something or...? That I, I always have this really funny memory of there was, you know, the music that we used to see because we lived in just we lived in the countryside in England. So the music we saw was very white, really, in, yep. in reflection. And I, and I remember there was some program that was on and I can't remember what the program was, but it showed a clip of what I can only assume must have been something like Soul Train or some type of performance right. like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was I think it was Sly and the Family Stone or something like that. You know, the memory of the music wasn't what was the thing that I remember. Didn't what I, yeah, it was it was this insane thing where there was these uh, a group of black dudes and I think some women and they had these incredible suits, which is why I think it was Sly and the Family Stone, because it was like kind of you know those star spangled yeah, yeah, yeah. type of outfits and i just remember the music me and my little brother just erupted you know we thought this was the coolest thing we'd ever heard you know and and that from that point on it was always like normal music was just sort of five and if we heard music like that it was 10 yeah. you know so we would always try and do these types try and hear this type of thing which was obviously very difficult when you're a young kid but i always knew that that was the type of music that i i liked more so then when i started going to like youth club disco and stuff that was from like six till eight which was in the very early 80s you know in the tail end of the tail end of the 70s it's probably the tail end of the 70s actually it was you know the older kids were all punks, but us younger kids were still into disco. Yeah. So we would go to the disco and dance until we were drenched in sweat. You know, we must have been like 10 years, 8, 9, 10 years old, you know? Yeah. And then that I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So then, of course, when breakdancing came out, yeah. that was me sold. Where was this? Where did you grow up? I grew up in a, t- in a place called Hive, which is near Folkestone. You know, it's, oh, in, it's yeah, a very yeah, yeah. small place, but had some really unusual people lived there, and the way things were was very unusual. You know, it was a yeah. it was a very it was an unusual place to grow up. I don't want to keep using that word, but if you've been there, you know it's like that. You know, and a lot yeah. of the people that come from that will have that perspective. You know, yeah. So how did so how did then that sort of manifest itself later on as you became a teenager and started you know like socially going out and. Well, the, th- the thing was, was where we were, I think also if a lot of people, I mean, people of our age understand this, but, you know, everything that was pre-internet and 
and when things weren't popularized you had to really seek stuff out mm. so we had to try harder than everybody because we didn't live in a big town we lived in a really small town but we were fanatics so there was some guys that were a few years older than us that used to go to like things all the clubs in london and they they was there was a guy who had seen tick and tock do body popping before they'd even done stuff with gary newman right so we had this really weird sort of points of reference where there was people that were really advanced and ahead but it created this weird this weird pocket where we lived so we'd all see these kids we were all riding bmx's but doing robotics and so our entry into breakdancing when it came we already knew what you know body popping kind of stuff was because yeah, yeah. there was other kids that were obsessed with don campbell lock and shabadoo and tony basil and all these weird type of people yeah so there was already the kids that we knew were already doing that yeah. so then when breakdancing come out we hadn't seen breaking you know the spinning on the floor yeah, yeah. but we'd seen all the other part you know yeah. so it was it was a really big thing for us so then when we would go out and we'd have to travel places we would like soak everything up like a sponge and then we'd come home and practice and practice and practice everything yeah. until you know we were like fanatical yeah. it was it you know so you were break dancing and i mean who wasn't not quite yeah it was just such an exciting youth event wasn't it yeah. it was yeah, yeah. It, it, i think it, i think that attitude of it i was never and also i was only proficient i was never really very good you know but I, it wasn't really that it was more the taking part and the whole fun of it and having a massive boombox and yeah. playing the music you love really loud you know and i really sort of i really gravitated to that and that whole thing of when when it's your turn to go in the circle you know that that feeling that rushed over you yeah. it's such a, a weird sensation i really can't equate any other sensation i've had in my entire life you know yeah it's a bit like you know if you were someone announced your name at an award ceremony or something and you had to stand up yeah, that yeah, moment yeah. it's kind of like that bit's homemade you know it was a really really strange but it's almost more subtle but better i think it's kind of interesting i i, I think that's something that kept me interested for a long time you know that weird sensation of you've got the control and it's your turn to yeah it's, it's strange but interesting and did you pick up were you picking up spray cans and markers at that point yeah we the i me, me and a couple of my friends really joke about this because we lived in this really small place and there must have been small places all over the country that were the same you know and our pl- where we lived was in no way any more remarkable or unremarkable than anywhere else yeah. you know there must have been places like this across the whole of england but i remember on the thursday night me and my brother would you know watch top of the pops like we would always do and i remember when the buffalo girls video came on and me and my brother were just like doing you know and we're seeing them break dancing and we're seeing and we're seeing them paint with spray cans and we're like holy shit that's like art but faster you know what that's the most incredible shit ever so that was on thursday so then we went to school on a friday like it was back then with only three tv channels yeah everyone's talking about yeah, buffalo yeah, girls yeah. at school so people are going yeah i'm a breaker and there's everyone trying to copy the moves at school and the other people are going yeah like i'm a dj <laughs> You know, yeah, DJ, you even got turntables. You know, it's ridiculous. People, other people saying, yeah, I'm a graffiti artist. So I was thinking, well, I'm all right at art, so I'm going to be a graffiti artist too, mm. you know. So then on Friday, we were all going, yeah, I'm going to do a piece. I'm going to do a painting. I'm going to do this. And then that Saturday, we went out in the morning and shoplifted all the paint from the local car shop. But who probably up until that day had probably never had a can of spray paint stolen ever. Yeah, yeah. And that day, we went in and rinsed it. And then 
throughout that whole Saturday, we all just were trying to do these paintings and these elaborate things. Yeah. So you can imagine people ringing the police, can't you? Just going, yeah, 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 yeah. there's uh, someone's painted like an Egyptian guy doing like King Tut or something on the side of my house and written the word break. You know, I don't really understand. So it just must have been mental that across the whole of England that yeah. that weekend yeah, yeah, yeah. must have been the a mass rash of graffiti breaking out across the whole country. Yeah, which well, I, I, guess, was... I guess a similar moment would have been when the Beastie Boys had the VW signs. Yeah, all of, a sudden, of course, yeah. That cultural moment that happens, yeah. and because everyone, there's so few outlets for it, mm. everyone sees it, and then everyone goes, right, I'm doing that. Yeah, and Volkswagen badges across the country went missing. <laughs> they certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you were drawn, did you carry it, like, from there, was it like right this is something that has followed have you did you do it for a bit and then like tailed off and then got back into it or was that it like as soon as you were in you were in well the thing as well I think a lot of people when they look back they have these really strange memories right which is what I always find and I I always I prefer to be honest because I think it tells a more real story you know yeah we weren't when we'd go to youth club to do breakdancing for example when we were the older kids because by this time breakdancing had come out so we, the, the woman who ran the youth club was going we can't play the electro music the girls are too scared of it so we had to breakdance to pop music so right. we would have breakdancing battles to like Katrina and the Waves yeah, and yeah, all nice. mad stuff like that you know I'm not going to sit here and pretend that people were in there slicing up Apache <laughs> dream on that would never ever have happened you know we would breakdance to rubbish yeah. you know and then we'd have all the elect. Our only real music was like the electro LPs, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, as it moved forward, people seem to forget as well when the fad of breakdancing was dead. Yeah. Being into hip hop and breakdancing was the most unfashionable thing in the world. And I remember when me and a few of my friends that were so into it, all of a sudden we'd gone from being cool. So looking like the idiots and there's all people going oh yeah like i'm a goth indie now yeah. or i'm this and we would all you know be sort of horrified by this and i uh i we did find it difficult and that's when i went more into just doing you know tagging and just graffiti yeah. heavier because people didn't really then understand what we were doing you know we'd listen to the electro as it started to turn into rap which yeah. was you know hideously uncool but we loved it and that was what we did it wasn't until a few years later when the Beastie Boys and all that lot came back which is probably only about a year and a half or two years but when you're a kid that feels like an an eternity eternity. yeah Yeah. and uh, yeah that's sort of how that happened but we I stayed with hip hop the whole way through and had periods of doing graffiti but I had to stop because I I, I, I'd done a lot and then they I I got a suspended prison sentence in 89 so right. that kind of slowed me down a bit. And then yeah. I started focusing doing more on music. And then right. the guy that I was doing graffiti with was DJ Clear and another guy called Surprise. And um, we started messing around making demos and searching for beats and all this. Right. So that's how that started, you know. Okay. So what age were you then? And sort of how did then, what trajectory did that take? So I, I was about in 89. We'd already started doing music by then. We'd, we'd started messing with music before that because I'm, I'm, I was about 17 or 18 and we started understanding that this record was made from this yeah. and this was made from that. And that was like a big revelation because, again, that's another thing that a lot of younger people don't understand. Was there wasn't that knowledge and it wasn't 
it wasn't so clear that that's what was happening. You'd sort of, you'd think, oh yeah, you know, Rapper's Delight's done to, you know, whatever, you know, the, the obvious sample, the chic thing yeah. and all that, you know, and you'd know that, but then you wouldn't then automatically assume that, you know, an Eric B and Rakim record that was brand new or brand new Ultramagnetics, you know, yeah. I didn't know what synthetic substitution was. I didn't know that drum break. So when I heard yeah. that Ultras record for the first time, I was thinking, oh my God, this record's incredible. Just assuming they'd made it. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't, it was a quick learning process, but once we'd learned, we were like, wow. And then we started to collect records and then we made, we would make demo after demo after demo. And it was really funny because we came from Kent there was a whole mass of people that lived there as well. Yeah. So there was myself and DJ Clear, who is Paul Godfrey, who wrote all the songs and produced all the songs for More Chiba. Yeah. So he lived probably 50 yards from me. Okay. So that we were sort of our little gang. And then um, Surprise lived around the corner. And then we started going to these this nightclub called Dusty's every Sunday, which, which would play hip-hop. And we met. MC Cell and Blob and Blob became first rate who was in the Scratch Perverts right, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then through those guys we met second to none break dancers and then we met Prime Cuts yeah. and all of these different people so you had all these really unusual influential people all in the 80s all knew yeah. each other you yeah. know so it was a really interesting thing you know you'd go to a a thing you go to a night and Prime Cuts would be there and he'd be tearing records to pieces and you'd just be like oh my god he... and you know in my mind he is the best scratch DJ I've probably ever seen live you know yeah. and I've seen a lot of people but for me there's something about the longevity of how long he's been good for the musicality yeah, yeah. of how good he is and just how good he is you know it's like stylish and yeah. um, you know so we were always influenced by that yeah. so then when we started making uh, music we'd made loads and loads of music and then we nearly got a record deal with g street really early on then we made a record ourselves and put it out and it all sold out yeah then we got a record deal with cold sweat then they wouldn't release the music we made which is fine because you know it wasn't what they wanted at that time but we were yeah. happy with it and then myself and dj clear separated oh you know he went on to being all into sort of more indie music which he needed to do you know that was his path and his journey you know so he explored that which then out of that came more cheaper and i carried on doing the music that i'd always been doing you know yeah so it was and oh but before that happened probably the most important situation that happened was we'd gone to a party in guildford of all weird places we'd got the train from hythe or sandling train station to Guildford to go to this party and when we got there it was awful but the guys were playing good records but it was just the way they were doing it was awful and there was this other guy who sat opposite us who looked like a mod but he was a bit older than us he was really cool Yeah. and uh, we got chatting to him and he just said look this party's rubbish let's go so we were like why not let's go so we went off with this guy called Richie who then ended up being probably the most influential person in record collecting right. that I'd ever met. So we went to his house, and at this point, you know, around our way where we lived, me and DJ Clear, we had like, I think like probably two Meters albums, a couple of James Brown albums, yeah. some Sly and the Family Stone, you know, we were the guys, and we could put yeah, on yeah. hip-hop funk nights, and everyone would go crazy, but we really didn't know anything. Yeah. So we go to this guy's house in Guildford, 
and that's when you have that moment where just everything gets blown open and you're like oh my god and the, the fact that he's so cool and so sharing and so I don't know, he's just one of them people that, you know, you meet a few of them in your whole life who's just the coolest guy, yeah. you know? And instead of being in any way guarded, you'd like, oh, yeah, do you know this one? Oh, this is easy to get. Do you know this one? Oh, you can find this here, this and this. Yeah. And I remember just him showing us these records and it just warping my entire perception of what I thought I knew. I knew yeah. nothing. And it was really humbling and important, you know? So I'm still friends with Richie yeah. to this day. And um, Format as well will say how important Richie is. It's like, for example, about two years ago, I DJed one night with Richie and um, we had to play themed music. So I played a Russian set right. and he said, oh, I'm going to play a psychedelic soul set. Cool, because it was a music sharing night. Yeah, yeah. So I've known Richie since 1990. Right, so it's like nearly 30 years or whatever. <laughs> Richie turns up with a box of records. I didn't know one of them. Not no one. And I'm like, where's this from? He's going, oh yeah, I had it all the time. I'm like, what? When we lived together in Holland Road, you had this? He's like, yeah, yeah, I just didn't get it out. <laughs> like, you, you lunatic. You know, this record is one of the best records I've ever heard. How have I never heard this? He's yeah. like, I don't know. Maybe you weren't listening. And I was like, yeah, just like, I love it. And, that, you know, he, he, the guy could be 70 years old and he'll turn around and show me a record that he's had since he was 20 yeah. that, that I've never seen. And he just go, oh, yeah, what about that? What about that? So he's obviously had a big influence on your life. Oh, massive. <laughs> In terms of music, you know, yeah. my, uh, my approach to collecting, you know, right. and it was me and him that found the first... Russian records we right. found uh, in the bottom of um, St James Street there was a charity shop and we were in there and we bought just like two or three just for a laugh because they were 10p each bought them back to the flat in Holland Road put them on first one drums just come thundering out of it and we were just like holy shit you know this is crazy so we went through and nearly everything we found was good yeah. so we went straight back there got a taxi went into the woman saying we want everything so we bought this armfuls of this record an entire record collection that had been dumped in there that was all yeah. Czech Polish and Russian and the woman thought we were mad and we loaded it all into a cab drove back to Holland Road and then just spent the rest of the day drinking cups of tea and playing every single song all the way through you know and by the end of it probably two thirds of it was rubbish but yeah. the other third was the entire basis of what ended up being my Russian, you know, my USSR Eastern Bloc yeah. collection, you know, which in 95 was a real big head start, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that was again down to him going, oh, yeah, let's listen to them. You know, I might not have ever done that. Yeah. So, yeah. So at this point, where was your art at? It used to, my art used to switch on and off, you know, because I'm one of them people, if I'm not instantly good at something, I lose interest in it. You know, I want to have a certain level of, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. You know, so, because it has to be fulfilling. And a lot of people, I think, they get a bit confused. You know, I think they, they think they're doing it for a certain reason. I think the reason why you do everything is for yourself, isn't it? You want to feel good about what you're doing. Yeah, and if you so. don't feel good about it, what's the point in doing it? Yeah. So when I was doing art, I wanted to be good at it. Otherwise, I wasn't interested. So when I wasn't feeling particularly inspired, I'd just go deeper into music right. and collecting and okay. looping things up and 
producing things for other people and doing all these different things. And then, then I think, oh, I want to go back into art again now. And then I'd go back doing art again. Yeah. So it was kind of weird. But since probably 2000 or 99, around that era, I'd had a massive spell towards about 96 up until about 98. I got really heavily into graffiti again. Then stopped for a bit again. Then from 2000, it's been relentless. Right. So, you know. And did you have any kind of similar formative experience in that where somebody kind of opened the door for you a little bit or, or showed you something that... I think... You were then like, okay, right, now I understand where I've got to go with this. I think what actually happened was, with graffiti, it was almost the opposite. It was like, there was people. there were people that were really famous and really known and really respected that I actually thought were rubbish. And and I used to just look at it and think, why is that person so regarded, you know, when I actually think that they're effectively talentless? Yeah. You know, what they're doing is horrible. Yeah. And um, so then I started looking at it just thinking, all oh, right, it's like a hierarchy and unless you play this sort of game of boosting up each other's egos, you're not allowed in. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'm not going to do that because I don't respect these people enough to do that. Yeah. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to invent my own thing. I'm going to ignore all of you and I'm going to form up with a group of people that are all like-minded yeah. and we are going to work as a nucleus, you know, just... So we formed the NT crew where we had 10 members and no one was allowed to leave and no one could join. Right. So we created this thing where we would... You know, we all used one another... For the end goal which was to yeah. create a mass of infamy and notoriety yeah because they would say to me i'd do a painting and they'd say that bit shit that's no good but they wouldn't let anyone else know that to everyone else they go yeah it's sick but to me they go that ain't no good that yeah, yeah so it was really really good it was like ultra critical yeah which really pushed me and then i just started seeing the results of this you know when we'd go abroad and we'd do all these different things so then i just sort of started thinking well you know this is only as big as i think it is you know so if i think I can paint with the best graffiti writers in the world. Yeah. The only thing stopping me is me thinking I can't do that. Yeah. So that is what I'm going to do. Right. So I decided that that's what was going to happen. I wanted it so that it wasn't just everyone in Brighton knew my name. It would be everyone in England would know my name. Yeah. Everyone in Europe. And then I'm going to be so that I would be a graffiti writer. If someone said in America, oh, yeah, Arrow, they go, yeah, I've heard of him. You know, and that was almost that had never been done other than yeah. a few very unusual individuals, like, say, for example, Mo2 or perhaps Pride, you know, a few people from England, but yeah. you know, obviously now Banksy, but then he doesn't do graffiti, you know, he's an artist. But, yeah. you know, up until that point, I was probably one of the few that was known, yeah. you know, which was very unusual. And that really created loads of enemies for me in England. It's interesting about just because I don't want to bring myself into it but the whole imposter syndrome thing where you only place the barriers in front of yourself yeah and when you say that like the only thing holding me back is thinking that I can't do it yeah and then just saying well I can so I'm going to yeah and then making it happen I think everyone should do that yeah I think and I think really... they should do it with everything yeah you know people should say I want to be happy get on with it yeah yeah I think that's a really interesting point I think it's I think it's I think it's almost something that the only people that would frown on that are the people that are incapable or unable to impl implement that themselves. Yeah. You know, it's like... P other people's opinion 
if it's not positive, is irrelevant. Do you know? Yeah, absolutely. We're getting deep, son. (laughs) 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 No, (laughs) who'd have known someone who did graffiti actually thought about it? No, well, it's it's interesting that you have thought about it because I think the people that genuinely kind of create something out of their passion are the ones that say well of course I can do this yeah it's the only way to believe it and it's the people that you know always wish that they could do something that will hate place the barriers in front of themselves so it's like all those guys you know that the certain hierarchy you know I won't ever mention anyone's names because that would be giving them cheap fame you know but you know they inspired me more than they've got any idea you know they're sitting there griping you know doing whatever they're doing yeah without ever thinking of the most fundamental things be good at what you do yeah. do it a lot do it in the right places and be cool to everybody because you never know like there's there's youngsters that I've met during my time that instead of disrespecting them to make my, give myself cheap sort of boost yeah. right that second I've been cool to them those those youngsters have gone on to become some of the greatest and biggest kings so then when they're talked about they'll say yeah I met Arrow he was really cool he really encouraged me yeah. that is true power that is how you infiltrate everything yeah. and because it's just showing respect to people yeah, yeah. on a people level yeah, yeah, you know yeah, and I think that's really important and people ignore that in graffiti they think oh well you know I'm more famous than you so I'm just going to treat you like a fool cool well that guy might be more famous than you in the end and he'll make you look like an idiot Yeah, because you were just alright but he's now a king you know yeah. he's crushing you and that's People need to remember that. The next king is always there. They're ready. Yeah. And they're going to snatch the crown. So how do you turn... Just keeping with the the graffiti and the artwork tip for a minute. How do you... Was there ever a point where you thought, right, this is, this is actually what I'm doing. I'm going to devote my life to this. I can make a living from this. Um, like how does one go about changing it from something you do that's on the edge of the law or illegal yeah, I mean, into something that's accepted where people are actually willing to pay you to paint something on on their building or do something for them or I think that all kind of <clears throat> happened it's almost like it was like a it's like a happy accident you know it, it's tons of serendipity mixed in with a load of luck mixed in with karma of just be, trying to be nice to everybody so yeah. But then, then that said, you know, but it, it, I'm like that. And then if someone wants to disrespect me, I'll be the first one to punch them in the head, you know. But, but then you've got to have a balance of that so that people know that they can't mug you off, you yeah. know. So not every story you hear about me would be nice. But then if you look at the backstory, you find out why I wasn't nice, yeah, you know. But um, what I think happened was I was fanatical about what I was doing. And I, even though I was doing destruction and damage and all these different things, I still kind of cared about whether it looked good yep. you know I didn't want it to look shit so that was quite important and I think that then rolled through with everything and then I would like you know back when I had a normal job for example I'd work all week and then someone would say oh can you paint this on the side of my business or can you paint this for me and I'd be like yeah yeah I'd turn up and paint that and I'd earn probably as much on a Saturday doing that so I'd earn a week so I was just thinking what am I doing you know, it's like, yeah. and then you live in Brighton and you start thinking, oh, it's 
nice, isn't it? So if you're ever going to have a place where you have a part-time job, it's here. Yeah. You know, so then you start getting into that mindset. And then... Just to interlude, when did you come to Brighton? I moved to Brighton in 93. And the strange thing about that was, even though I only lived 100 miles away, I'd never been to Brighton before in my life. Right. And, um... You know, and also the other thing is I'd only ever been on an aeroplane once before I moved here and that aeroplane was a two-seater because someone overheard me in a conversation a family friend heard me saying I'd never been on an aeroplane so they put they, we went for a fly in a two-seater so I'd never you know I'd left the country but only very on a very small level you know yeah. so when I moved here my whole life changed you know I, I, I learned what other food tasted like learned what looking at the rest of the world looked like you know Brighton effectively changed my entire life yeah. you know so I, it, that's why I love it and um but anyway after that slight digression um with all the traveling and everything i started thinking well i'm doing this and i'm doing that and then i would be going to places like new york and los angeles and then i'd see all the people that i would you would see in magazines and on these videos and everything and you hold them in this super high regard then you just realize they're just that bloke yeah. you know they're that bloke yeah yeah they've got neighbors they have to go to the shop they have to go and get their paint from here so there's actually no difference except how they framed what they're doing yeah so i started looking at that thinking you know what england is effectively like virgin territory for mm. this because it's not really framed up properly so we'd go to these things in los angeles and we'd see all these guys that were the super famous graffiti writers that were our friends yeah. you know but they couldn't paint trains how we were doing it so they'd come here we'd take them to other countries and you know to just various places to, they'd paint trains and they'd be like oh my god these guys are cool so then we'd go back to america and then they'd take us everywhere with them so yeah. we made these insane networks of friends yeah and then the fact was was when we got there and we had to do paintings the paintings were actually good you know they weren't shit so we learned lots from being in lots of places you know and if you constantly absorb and take influence from other things not necessarily mean doesn't mean copying it means yeah, yeah, you know if you, affected by the yeah if you go somewhere and, and everyone's finishing their paintings that so they're super clean and they look great you sort of think wow if i finish mine to look that clean that would add another layer because my my paintings look different but if they were sharper and more yeah. you know so we took all this on board and then we'd see them starting to go into the galleries to do stuff and I started thinking well, that's really interesting you know because that's not really happening in England but then everything happens in cycles yeah. so that will so I was already in a position to try and make that happen so you saw that coming yeah so of... it was important for me to change everything and I always try to change everything ahead of the curve you know because if you're ahead you always stand a better chance yeah so and you've got to believe I think your gut instinct is the win every time if you meet someone and they're cool and you just think yeah they're cool but there's something just keep cool with them and just don't get too involved you know it's like but if you meet some people you think that guy's an arsehole he probably is yeah you know so that's my advice on how to navigate graffiti <laughs> okay so you now you're kind of full-on graffiti where's music now for you well again it, it where i do graffiti all the time music hasn't gone away it's just like my hobby and i think actually being the doing the dj and on the radio i got that gig accidentally i turned up to paint the inside of the studio right and um got chatting to mickey and he was like what music you know and i was saying oh yeah i've got all these mad records blah, blah. i've always wanted to do a one-off show 
and he said well if you want to do a one-off show you can do one on here so I was like, oh my god so i went there to do a one-off show yeah four years later you know i think i was within the first month or two months yeah, yeah. my one-off test show and i'm still there yeah. so that's been a really nice outlet you know so it's given more people that probably didn't know access to oh my god is that what he actually listens to you know is yeah, that yeah. what he thinks about this and that you know but um all the way through i've always collected records obviously from being friends with and living with format and living with richie and having this insane pot of people that yeah. were all so deep in music and there's also another guy that needs a, a, a heavy mention is paul sutton who was a guy who lived in brighton and it, um he used to have a lot of connections with alan across the tracks and he right. put me up on so many records you know he's another one of those guys like he'll say oh you know i'm i'm collecting this at the moment and then he'll say oh, i'm not collecting my funk anymore do you want to go through it these records are amazing and he, yeah, he'd yeah. constantly well, if he was going through a collection he'd say oh, i found this do you know it you know yeah. so he's another one of those guys like that you know who is another big influence on yeah. on the collecting now i'm digressing aren't i no, it's fine. Okay. And um, so with all these samples and records and everything and being and becoming, we started doing some stuff with Paul Godfrey again from More Chiba. Yeah, yeah. After More Chiba stopped in about 2005, we started going to the massive Joe's Garage studio, which was the More Chiba studio yeah. in Clapham. And um, it started off where... More Chiba were going to do a project with MC Mello and Ice Pick, which would have been absolutely crazy. But that didn't come to fruition. But I had to help More Chiba to negotiate what the terms were and what to make everyone happy. Yeah. And then when it fell to pieces, I then chatted to Mello and said, well, if you still want to do something, let's do something. And he was like, yeah, cool. So then we made the Give Them What They Want, which yeah. was a tune from 2005 that was really popular and that was a good song and then i started working with a guy called matty who's the sound engineer for natty congo and um adamski and right. all these weird people yeah and uh, adrian sherwood in yeah, yeah, ramsgate yeah. and margate so that's the guy who i do everything with so i come i find the samples and come up with the ideas and, and then he he's like he's like a genius when it comes to everything like you put the thing and he's going i hear what you're saying you know i might say oh i want to use this bit and that bit and then make that so it jumps over there and he goes i've got it and then he you know we put it in machine or wherever we do it yeah, yeah. so working with him is really good fun because it's almost like i don't have to speak properly and he kind yeah. of understands what <laughs> what bit i want to use you yeah. know and then we go no 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 put that and he's like yeah and we, we build all these songs so then we just started making tracks just to, as a sort of downtime just for fun yeah and then i just thought let's approach someone and make a record and he was like yeah let's do it and i was like well let's approach someone really good you know because if they say no it doesn't matter yeah so we just went straight to rex you know the guy that had worked with apollo brown and yeah. dj Premier and all them lot and played him the beats and offered him our terms and he was like yeah i'm down so we were like yeah cool so that's how our thing worked and then format did a remix for it which was really nice because yeah it was much more contemporary by him than what people were used to so yeah. that's interesting and then from that you know rex has gone back to boston saying yeah those guys are great it's really good fun he's got a record that he loves everyone likes the, the song yeah so then we approached matthew ragazzino who is sean price's nephew right 
So he's an incredible MC. He was discovered by Clark Kent, you know, from the famous New York radio and all that. And um, we're doing a whole album with him based on the similarities and differences of the black experience in Africa and America. So out of the blue concept album. Yeah. So the whole idea is, is we've based it on a series of images which I know it sounds real like a jazz concept but, but why not <laughs> you know no one the way rap works now is no one buys the modern rap you know it's downloadable and people rip it yeah. you know and Spotify you have a million plays and you don't even get as much money as if you sell 500 7 inches right, yeah. so I've said to him this is the time to make a project that matters and yeah. he's like I totally agree so we've we've done the dit, we've chatted, given the terms. He's into it. He's going to make a project that he knows that in ten years' time, people are going to come to him and say, "You know that project you did? That was really important. It really yeah. changed everything." You know, because there was, for me, the influence of rap music on me was obviously it got my attention and excited me. But everything I learned about the Black Panthers, you know, all the different needs and the issues and every, all the different things that happened in the black community and happened in the black world yeah. or in our world I learned that from rap records yeah. you know not, even if it wasn't that explicit bit of information it made me think well oh, I better look that up or oh, that's interesting you know all the people you learn about you know yeah. UEP Newton Marcus Garvey all these important people that did incredibly important things I didn't learn about any of that <clears throat> until I listened to rap music yeah, yeah. and I think that that's a real tragedy that there's massive generations of kids not just black but white as well because to understand for black people to get what they what needs to be correct yeah white people have to understand as well all people. Like who writes the history yeah of course it? yeah so i think it's really important that there are these situations out there where people can learn about this stuff it's so important and um so matthew ragazzino is totally into it so he's write this whole album and every single track is sampled off African records. Right. So the whole thing is like out of, it's yeah. like out of Africa. Here it is. You know, yeah. he's from Africa originally. Obviously, he's born in Brooklyn. You know, and um, it works like that. So I think it's a, quite an interesting project. Yeah. So you're working on that right now. Yeah, we're making a mini album, like eight, nine track album with him. Okay. And then we're also putting out a thing by a guy called Neverending Echo from America, who. Um, uses all vintage equipment right. to create on almost like drumetric style super dusted library type music yeah. that's quite out of control but amazing okay so um maybe i should have said and amazing not but amazing <laughs> 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 correcting myself <laughs> grammatically live and uh so and so where's where's art and graffiti for you right now then as well if we're up to date like where where are you at with that like what's going on I mean to be honest with you to me it's all the same thing because to me every painting I do has a soundtrack like so if I'm listening to you know say for example I'm going to go and paint at a massive jam and there's loads of people there and they want to know why my name's right at the top of the flyer I've got to show them why it's there so I've got a whole soundtrack that I've got on in my headphones on the way there and by the time I'm there I'm like a boxer entering the ring yeah. you know I'm prepared and my soundtrack's in my head and that's going to get translated onto the wall so yeah. all that sort of 
not aggressive, but that posturing, you know, and that again, that whole moment when you step into the circle, that is going to be expressed on that painting in yeah. that jam. So you know that I'm there. That's it. And that doesn't mean that it's at cost to you, but it just means that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know? And um, so every painting I do is based on music. So I'll listen to certain types of music and then I'll paint and draw in a certain way, right. you know? So. And does that change dramatically from kind of the stuff you're doing that's more gallery based? I, or do you still kind of get in that mindset through music? I, when I do the paintings for the gallery, what I try to do is I've tried to find a way of taking what I've learned doing graffiti and not altering it because I think that galleries need to learn what graffiti is and eventually they'll respect it. You know, I'm not trying to be leading a charge or being some sort of, you know, I'm not trying to sort of change the world. I'm just trying to say, look, there's no point me learning something to this level and then changing what I do you know it doesn't make any sense it'd be like learning to play guitar brilliantly and then when you finally get there you've got to play the drums it's like it doesn't make any sense at all yeah. whereas I think you know if you've invented a certain type of music the only way you can do it is to push forward with it until people recognise it absolutely um, so I mean you're fairly I mean you're really well established artistically yeah maybe where do you see that going well, I'm uh, I'm tenacious and annoying and thick-skinned, so I am never going to have a real job. That, okay. I've come to terms with that a long time ago, so I will make a living being an artist. I yep. already do, yeah. and, you know, a, a lot of people struggle to sell a painting, you know, but every painting I've ever done is sold, yep. every single one of them. So... Is that because somebody wants a piece of work by arrow yes i think that's part of it but i think then the other sort of thing of it is it encapsulates their experience you know because if that person is what i think this is the, the thing that people don't recognize is like the people that were rich 10 years ago were just rich people that had a certain experience whereas the people that have got money now are people of our age and of our experience yeah. now their experience isn't laura ashley and all that type of twee stuff Quite. their experience is breakdancing raving all these other mad things yeah. they could be multi-millionaires now the art they want they want that art to touch them yeah so if you do art that's true and from your experience yeah. it will resonate with those people so art republic aren't fools they're not going to fill their gallery with stuff that ain't going to sell they're going to fill it with twisted abstract paintings of Grace Jones because yeah. they know there's people of our age that are loaded that go love that Grace Jones and they buy it yeah you know they might a lot of the people that buy those types of things don't have a clue who Arrow is but then when they do a check and find out they're like oh this is even better you yeah. know he's a nutter he's done this even though I'm not a nutter you know but do you understand what I'm saying do, it can yeah. be painted in many ways you know it's like for example, when we made my book, we had a whole massive essay written in the start of it to frame the contents. Yeah. Because if the book was handed to, say, for example, your mum or dad, and they read it, they'd go, what a yobbo. Because they'd think, oh, this is like Jeremy Kyle shit. Yeah. 
Whereas if it's framed and David Attenborough had handed them the book and said, this is a very important, significant cultural art movement, you have to understand it. They've got people who'd read it and go, oh my God, I can't believe they go to these links. This is insane. Yeah, yeah. So it's all about framing. Yeah. And I think that's very important. I think a lot of people forget that. So. And how much time are you currently spending sort of between music and art? Like, how do you balance that out? I listen to music all the time. Yeah. I don't have a TV. I haven't had a TV for years and years and years. So I have music on all the time. I have music in the car all the time and do paintings with music on. Yeah. So, but when you're saying, for instance, working on a musical project, does then that become the sole focus? And no, I still do art. But like, say for example, I'll be doing art in the day because I've still got to pay my mortgage. I've still got to pay my car insurance, the petrol, and all these different things. So you know, I still have to go and do jobs for people, or paint, do a painting, and sell the painting, or go and do paint a building for someone, or do whatever the weird things I do for my job. Yeah. But then in the evening, say for example. When we were doing the Matthew Ragazzino project, that, as I'm sure you know, making ten songs, which was what we presented him with, you yeah. don't make ten songs. You probably make thirty songs, yeah. and then you whittle down the ones that you think are the best. Yeah, yeah. So to make thirty songs, you imagine how many African records I've had to buy and hunt through and search to find that amount of samples to create that amount of songs. Yeah. So. And we haven't, you know, we haven't been, we haven't made it easy. You know, the music doesn't all sound like plinky plonk high life. It's yeah. like the type of thing where you'd want to hear Ghostface Killer rapping on all of it. Yeah, it's yeah. like all these massive anthemic things where we've really struggled because some of the time signatures are all over the place. The, the sort of uh, the notes and the tonation of some of the stuff is, you know, almost sounds flat yeah, yeah. and horrific. Yeah. So we've had to do all sorts of tricks to sort of warp it a bit yeah. to make it, things fit you know so it has been a really quite time consuming project you know but we're really happy with the songs that he that we kind of push forward and there's one particular one that's so brutal the only thing you can imagine is Big Daddy Kane rapping over it in 1988 that's the only way I can describe this thing and it would have been one of the best records ever you know it sounds like a cross between Give the drummer some by Ultra and Welcome to the Terror Dome. Right. But it's only like two samples. But the noise inside this loop and the drum sounds with this horn that sounds like Welcome to the Terror Dome, you just hear it and every part of you from that era is stirred up, you yeah, know? Yeah. So I think that suits perfectly with the, the topic and the theme, you know? Yeah. But also when we do it by doing this project we don't do things looking backwards you know i'm not one of those guys that thinks oh things were better in my day you know i understand everything mutates and everything changes yeah. you know and i think that is the key to staying fresh yeah, yeah the most important thing but i also think you can't complain about this new trap music i just and this type of music i just don't think it's hip-hop i think it's another genre it could be hip-hop yeah but you know the thing the cutoff has happened and of course that's obvious because youth culture is made by youth yeah we are no longer youth yeah you know so i would have been horrified if i'd have been bringing public enemy records and my dad had been rating them i wanted yeah. my dad to go hey, it's rubbish it's yeah. crap. that otherwise i would have been what type of kid would i be quite so kids need to listen to their thing because it's their identity and what they're doing is 
you know, we can look upon it with hindsight and say, it's a shame some of the messages ain't a bit more positive. Right. It's a shame the, you know, the objectification of women, the glorification of drugs and violence. Yeah. It's tragic. But unless one of those people involved in that scene has the you know the the minerals to change that or to do something and you know and that, that, that i mean i'm dismissing an entire genre i know there are people that do positive things and say positive things yeah but it's i just hope that it doesn't do too much damage you know with the with the youth you know yeah. whether okay. it's part of a <clears throat> stupidification project yeah to keep people dumb yeah well that brings us quite nicely to the subject of the podcast which is yes called the current state of music but i'm more than willing to encompass your artwork in that as well because i see it as with you it's one and the same thing Mm, so where do you see kind of music and music culture and you know the state of it at the moment it might be controversial i think music at the moment is absolutely amazing yep i think the fact that record companies have lost control is brilliant because their greed which introduced cds got rid of vinyl which then cds could be burned at home which led to downloads which led to the death of creativity because anyone could make it you could effectively make a song on a phone you know so that you've 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 greeded yourself into a ditch there you are whereas the people that care about music are out there forming bands creating incredible music pressing it on small run records and then there's no pressure on them to make a hit record there's just pressure on them to make a good record and I think that's the difference music people should make good music not hit music because if you're trying to appease a nation of people and millions of people that have got no clue what's good then you you aren't benefiting anybody you know and I think there's some amazing labels around the world doing some of the most amazing things that I've heard in years. You know, it's like, say for example, we're all in, we're all into breakbeats, wanting to find records with great drum breaks that were soulful and great. Cool. Now is the best time in the world to collect those records because yeah. there's records every. I'm going to Rare Kind every week. They go, oh, we got three new Timian records. Buy a record on Timian. I'll buy them without even listening to them. Take the record home. It sounds like something that Wu Tang would have made an entire <laughs> song out of every time. It's like yeah. cool. Lap that up. You know, I would say ninety percent of the stuff on Funk Night is brilliant. You know, there's label after label, isn't there? Of these sort of rough things where people are going back to sample um going back to learning instruments you know that yeah. kid at school who'd been forced to do piano lessons or forced to do drum lessons who m- they might have thought was a nerd is now the coolest kid in peckham yeah you know yeah, yeah <laughs> which yeah. is fantastic so it's no longer the man in the tracksuit who's a, who had the best jordans when he was at school it was the kid that was forced to do drumming yeah because now he's the hottest kid or well, the kid these are grown men but you understand what i'm saying yeah, don't yeah. you in peckham people like you know, Yusuf Dawes and mm. and uh, Moses Boyd and these type of people. You can't get cooler than them people. No. And I think that's what's amazing. Because these guys, you know, they've had to... They aren't just good. They've had to master that thing. Because, yeah. you know, they're going in there and having to do things with people like Tony Allen. You can't do that if you're amateur. No, so, you know, I think, I think from that perspective, that wasn't happening 10 years ago. And that wasn't happening... 15 or 20 years ago yeah so i look at it as like there's almost like cycles where things die and things get reborn yeah and i think at the moment 
we're looking at a really unusual period of music where if you can be bothered to search there's there's absolute tons of it yeah. yeah but do you think like say you know this project you've just worked on and in terms of releasing it and sort of hopefully earning some money from it I mean for given me given that streaming you know as you said earlier creates little or no money unless you're sort of now in the hundreds of millions yeah. or billions of listens the way how we do you, how do you then sort of think right we're gonna I need to earn some money out of this due to the time of the effort I don't ever look I don't it. earn money from making music that's it's my hobby but in just terms of getting it like released say for example and, with the Rex record we put that out it made all the money back in one day Right. Because it's Rex, people want it. There's, two, yeah. there's, there's 250 copies, and um, I don't know what that means. Is that bad news? No, um, you know, there's only 250 copies. It's all you know, shrink wrapped. It's got OB strips. It's posh. It's Rex. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like so. It's a record that people want. Yeah. All we did was we made the videos. The videos are effectively adverts for our clothing company. We put the record out. It gives us kudos. It makes our clothing brand look great. Artistically, I have loads of control over it. So it's like a vanity project, yeah. which generates money for us through our clothing okay, right. prices, selling more and more and more. You know, I make yeah. money from that. So, but what it also does is every time you take a positive step, people notice. And if you keep taking positive steps, you only end up in a good place. Yeah. So one day someone will say, oh, can you produce this? You know, this is the money. And then you know but that's not the goal the goal is to make things right. that are intrinsically good yeah because if you make something that's good eventually people will recognize it you know it's important yeah. it's the same with the ragazzino thing you know that album he's got 100 percent ownership of what he wants to do if he wants to put it on itunes if he wants to put it on spotify he can put it wherever he wants yeah but he can't put it on there until the records are done but by right. the time the records are pressed and already and we've got them and we're ready to push them out the demand for that record we won't meet the demand so the record will sell out pay for the pressing pay for the thing give him the money we you know his split of the money pay for every single thing yeah and then he's like this is brilliant that got released yesterday and i'm paid today it's like yeah cool tell you okay. and that's i mean we don't even need to pay that fast but that's how it works you know and, we, and a lot of that we took from you know what was going on with Lawrence and what he was doing with Dope you know with West right. Side Gun and people like yeah. that you know that was a brilliant strategic business move and you know people have to respect him for that you know yeah. he's a he's a, a proper entrepreneur and he took some real risks and you know good for him yeah you know? okay so where do you see if it's if it's like in a period of sort of rebirth where do you see things heading what I hope is is the youth culture music go, just uh, continues doing whatever it's doing. You know, that's not my concern because I'm not part of that. What I hope is I hope that the people that I respect within music see this divide and understand it so that then they think, you know what, rather than trying to make a record that appeals to the 16, 17, 18-year-olds, I'm a 40-year-old man. Why do I need to worry about what them kids are doing? That's yeah. Kids make music for them kids. Yeah. These older guy rappers that are brilliant and have learnt their craft and, you know, have lyric and wordplay and all the different skills that make them exceptional, 
they should just make exceptional records because yeah. they have an audience. So they shouldn't worry about what the youth are doing. They should just make quality songs, yeah. put them on limited vinyl runs, put them out. Yeah. And that would continue to generate. Over If Big Daddy Kane suddenly said, oh, well, yeah, I'm going to do a four-track EP where I'm just going to rap over classic James Brown breakbeats, do you know how long that record would last? It would last about five minutes on the internet, and it would be gone. And someone says, yeah, Kane, you laid them raps down in uh, one morning, and then the record was put out, and then you got, like, five or six grand straight away. Are you going to tell me that Big Daddy Kane ain't going to do that? Mm. Because I can tell you, he will. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the only reason people ain't making these songs is because they're trying to find reasons not to make them. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, it goes back in that full circle, doesn't it? You can do anything you want as long as you believe you can do it. Yeah. You know, so if people want to make the greatest music ever made, make it. You know? Well, that brings me to the vice point. I like to um, sort of finish on if you've got any advice for. I know you said sort of the kids make the music for the kids. And, they do, I think. But have you got any advice, say, for any sort of young people that want to, you know, maybe they've done a bit of tagging or whatever, or they're making some beats. You got any advice for them how to sort of go take it somewhere further? I think what they're, I think there's several things. First of all, keep your house clean. Don't upset people. And when I say keep your house clean I mean don't have loads of stuff all over your house and don't do dumb shit like putting it all over Instagram and then wondering how the police work out where you live when they track you through your phone um, <laughs> you know I just think what you've got to do is you've got to identify what it is what you want to do yeah. what you want to achieve and then like just focus on it and strive towards it at all costs but as long as the cost is not to others yeah. you know yeah. so it's like doesn't mean upsetting other people sometimes you have to upset someone but that might only be because they put themselves in a position where you've got no other option but it shouldn't mean getting to where you need to go needs to be at the cost of others right. you, do you understand what I'm, I understand the science of yes. that so it doesn't mean go around being <laughs> this and robbing people out and cheating people and all that it just means you know absolutely see your vision of what you want to do if you want to be the most famous graffiti writer in england i can tell you exactly how to do it go out and be the best graffiti writer in the whole of england that means you've got to have dope hand style you've got to have good dubs you've got to have good throw-ups you've got to do good pieces you've got to do good spots you've got to be able to do everything well because a lot of people get mixed up and think oh well i can be the most famous just for tagging yeah, but tagging is like 20% of graffiti. And if yeah. you only do tagging, you only appeal to people that like tags, you're missing 80% of the people that will boost you. Yeah. So as long as you do all them things without upsetting, you're going to upset some people. But as long as you do those things all correctly, yeah. then you have integrity. And integrity is worth more than everything. Yeah. So if you can build yourself, and when people start hating on you and talking shit about you, it means it's what you're doing is right. Because if you've not done anything to those people and they're finding a reason to dislike you, all they're effectively saying is out loud is, I'm a dickhead. Okay. You know? Yeah. Because they're like it bitter and insecure. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a classic. It's like you watch it happening and you're like, mate, you are actually making yourself look like a proper idiot. And in music, if... I don't think I can give anyone any advice in music. I can make a good mixtape. 
I'm doing all right radio show and I can put a beat together. <laughs> but success-wise, I can make a cult record, it appears. But, uh, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, again, just do things with integrity. You know, it's like someone could play me the mellow record I made in 2005, you know. I'm still proud of it. I still stand next to it and go, yeah, that was a banger. Yeah. You know, so I don't make loads of things, but the things I make and put out, I'm proud of. You know, like the yeah. Rex EP. I'm proud of every song, you know? Yeah. So, I think okay. that's important. Okay, and on that, we are Well, done. thank you very much for inviting me in to chat fraff. Thanks so it's much. It's been a lot of fun. So that was a really enjoyable conversation I had back in last summer with Arrow. I hope you enjoyed it too. But I'm gonna keep... I still get a lot out of thinking back to that conversation. And if you're new to the podcast and... You, this is your first episode then uh, there's kind of a lot of inspiration certainly in this series but definitely going back to season one with Mark Ray that was a conversation that stuck with me for some time talking about making your own luck and uh, the conversations in this series each one's kind of had something in it that's certainly helping me with my own issues of self-confidence and uh, all that kind of stuff all those barriers that you place in front of yourself that hold you back hopefully we're breaking some of those down for you too in the same way that they're being broken down for me so if you'd be so kind if you are new to this podcast or you're certainly if you're enjoying it if you could go to itunes leave a review pass it around your friends The more people that kind of dig it, then the uh, the more people I can approach to get these conversations started. And we've still got some more coming up. Jay Felix, who's blowing up right now, he is going to be next. He'll be next week. And then we've got a guy who's a, a songwriter, an artist in his own right. He's formerly part of Snow Patrol, Ian Archer. He's going to be... He's going to be doing an episode and we're keeping our fingers crossed for Rodney P and also Rob the Bank, which I'm trying to line up right now. So if you want to hear those, then don't forget to subscribe. They'll come straight into your podcast player, whatever that is, every Saturday morning, hopefully for the foreseeable future. If you've got any ideas for guests as well, message me. Uh, You can get me Chris Cracknell Mixing on Facebook or at my studio, Goldtone Studio. If you're listening and you know people that you think might be of an interesting conversation, then please do hook us up. And the mix that goes behind this will be online soon. Once we've run out of the actual interviews, then uh, we'll be putting up... We'll be putting up some of the uh, interesting mixes from this. The Rich Far one's good. This one is a gem. The Lee Bright from BBE, the last episode, that'll be going up to. And they'll be up in podcast format as well, but you'll also be able to download them from the SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash current state of music. So thanks for listening. Without you listening, there's kind of no point of doing this. So I do appreciate you tuning in. 
and we'll hope to see you this time next week on the Current State of Music podcast. Until then, take care yourselves. Peace. sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And she's always gone too long In the time she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gonna stay Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime and she goes away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime and she goes away Sunshine when she's gone 
Ain't no sunshine when she's gone Only darkness every day Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime that she goes away Anytime that she goes away goes away